0: Brothers and sisters, this morning we are continuing our sermon series, Anchoring Truth for Turbulent Times. And one thing that has become really turbulent in our culture right now is the increasing polarization that we are facing. There is an increasing feeling that we have to take sides on all kinds of things, and if you don't take the right side, watch out, you are an enemy. One of my seminary professors, David Fitch at Northern Seminary, he he calls this the enemy-making machine. There is a system, an ideology at work that pits people against each other, and we begin to define ourselves by what we are against and who we are against. And polarization, this turns us into enemies. It's an enemy-making machine in our culture. And it can happen in uh, uh, silly things, like even even like sports, you know, this... this uh, principle happens there you know if i were to ask you who's the greatest basketball player of all time is it mj or is it lebron you know in the the if you watch any sports radio the the vitriol and the passion that can happen the the polarization that can happen in this question is pretty crazy to watch and you know what i i know i'm in the chicagoland area i'm a lebron fan i actually like both of them but just because i like lebron that all automatically makes me an enemy okay i i get it you know, but in all seriousness, the, this enemy-making machine, it, it takes things that are good and true, and it turns them into enemy-making, rallying cries that turn people away from each other and pit us against one another. Let me give you a few examples, especially as we think about uh, the election week and what's coming up. You know, Christians, for decades, they have discerned the need to be pro-life. And that is a wonderful and holy thing. But for some people, that means that if you don't vote Republican, then you are an enemy and perhaps not even a Christian. And there are other Christians who have discerned the need to promote social justice and to confront and dismantle systemic racism in our culture. And that is also a good, holy, and noble thing. Those are great biblical things. But for some people if you don't vote Democrat, you are also an enemy, and perhaps not even a Christian. Meanwhile, we judge one another, we say mean things to one another, and we, sadly, we stop talking to each other altogether. And then what happens is we begin to actually ignore the issues, ignore the issues on the ground that are happening in our churches and in our communities. And Satan is laughing all the way to the bank Because he's taking good things and he's used them to pit us against each other, divide us, and fight one another. I mean, have you felt this? Have you seen the polarization that is happening in our world and in our culture? Our world and our churches, they are filled with polarization, judgmentalism, strife, and antagonisms of all kinds. And if we don't stay anchored, friends, the enemy-making machine will destroy us. A house divided cannot stand. So how do we stay anchored to Christ and to each other in such a polarized world? Well, I believe the the section of Scripture, the Bible has some good things to teach us on this topic. So I invite you to follow along with me uh, at home with your Bibles or on your smartphone. Uh, Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. That's the passage we're looking at today. And the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, he is writing to a divided church. They are divided against one another, and they are also considered an enemy in the culture they find themselves in. They are a new religion that does not worship the emperor, so they are not patriotic, and they are considered others, enemies. So what is the Apostle Paul going to do? How is he, how is he going to bring healing and unity and peace in this time, well, first of all, he's going to draw on the teachings of Jesus Christ, the one who overcame all hostility, and and he overcame the enemy-making world that he lived in. And if, if I could sum up everything that Paul is going to say in this passage, I, I would I would sum it up like this: In a world that makes enemies make peace, in a world that does evil do good let me say that again again in a world that makes enemies make peace in a world that does evil do good that's paul's admonition to the church we are to shine a light in the darkness we are to be salt in in the earth and as jesus our savior and our master gave us an example and command we shall love our enemies and overcome evil with good So, I'm going to break down the passage uh, around that point today. In, In a world that makes enemies, make peace. In a world that does evil, do good. And let's see how that unpacks in this passage. So, verse 14, Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, Paul is simply echoing what Jesus taught. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, we are to bless our enemies, and to bless someone is to pray God's favor upon them as Jesus commanded. We're praying for God's favor and love and kindness to be upon our enemies. It's a pretty radical thing to say, right? Because this is really unnatural for us. When someone harms us, when someone does something wrong, everything in us wants to get even and do something back to them. And this is why Paul, in his wisdom, adds the negative here bless and do not curse in other words refrain from making an enemy refrain from that enemy making machine refrain from the desire to get the last word refrain from the desire to get even to win and to conquer refrain to be from being dragged into the polarization that this world wants to drag us into instead be resolved to bless them and to pray for them and as you do your heart will be changed and you will realize that God has a heart for this person. This is a person for whom Jesus died upon the cross to win their love and, and their salvation. So in a world that makes enemies, we make peace. In a world that does evil, we do good instead. And then Paul goes, continues in verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, this is a wonderful uh, admonition to us, but it also can be quite difficult. In fact, John Chrysostom, a, a pastor in the fourth century, he noted that it's often easier to sympathize with those who are mourning than it is to congratulate and rejoice with those who are succeeding. You know, it's so easy for us to be jealous or envious or to be feel like it's unfair when someone else has something good happen to them. And this reminds me of the elder son in the story of the prodigal son, who after the lost son comes home and the father wants to throw him a party, the elder son does not want to rejoice. He is upset because the father never threw him a party for him and his friends. And look, after all, look at all the lost son had done. He did not deserve this party. And so the elder son, he could not rejoice because he was jealous and envious He could not celebrate with the father. He could not empathize with the fact that he had nearly lost his brother. And now his brother had come back. So he missed out on the party. He missed out on the father's rejoicing over the son. And we too, we miss out. We miss out when we don't rejoice with those who rejoice. We miss out on the collective joy and the connection in the fellowship, and the opportunity to build a friendship when we can't rejoice with those who rejoice. And on the other hand, we also can have difficulty with those who are mourning. You know, because mourning, let's be honest, it's not very pleasant. Does anybody like to mourn? You know, it's not a pleasant thing to do. It's easier to just avoid it altogether, right? In fact, there's a, a wisdom proverb in the Jewish tradition that says, withdraw not, Withdraw not thyself from them that weep. In other words, resist the urge to avoid those who are weeping or mourning. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? I'll give you a second to think about it. Okay, give me your answer. Okay, shout it out in your living room. Okay, it's John eleven thirty five, 35. And it's Jesus wept. It's Jesus wept. And this comes after Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. And he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when Lazarus' sister Mary comes to him crying, the Bible says that Jesus was deeply moved. So moved that he wept with Mary. You see, even though Jesus knew the end of the story, he knew that all things would turn out right, he is still deeply moved by Mary's tears. So much so that he joins with her. He entered into the midst of the pain. See, our Lord and our Savior was a man who was deeply moved by the tears of his friends. And, oh friends, I plead with you, let Jesus be your model. Let Jesus be your example. And if you've ever been told to refrain from crying, look upon the crying Savior. He's our model for what the best human life is. And he mourned with his friend Mary. And if I might say a word to the men, we've often specifically been told that real men don't cry. That's been told in our culture. It's reinforced in TV shows and in movies. And we're we're told that, that men should hold back their tears. In fact, I had a good friend, I I have a good friend who told me at one point that because of this, he felt like he couldn't cry. He couldn't cry with people. And so he began to pray regularly, Lord, restore my tears. Lord, restore my ability to cry with those who cry. And the Lord heard his prayer. The Lord heard his prayer. And some of you, you may need to pray, whether you're men or women, Lord, restore my tears. Because often we avoid mourning or we even avoid rejoicing. And when we do that, we let our hearts harden over time. And we need to pray, even today, Lord, restore my ability. To rejoice with those who rejoice. Restore my ability to mourn with those who mourn. And as we love people, as we love people enough to do this, friends, we become agents of peace. Agents of healing in God's broken world. This broken world we find ourselves in. As we take the time to cultivate the empathy, we open up a space for the Holy Spirit to work in this person's life. As we tend to their rejoicing and to their weep, weeping, we bring the presence of Christ into that moment and we join in. And that's how the Holy Spirit can work through us. So in a world that makes enemies, we can pursue peace when we do this. In a world that does evil, we can do good when we rejoice and when we mourn. And Paul continues this thought in Romans twelve sixteen. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So Paul says we're to live in harmony with each other. And this is a beautiful picture of of different notes sounding out that come to make a beautiful sound together. And it reminds me of this, this unity that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 where he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. See, this is a picture of a community in harmony. There's a unity of purpose there is a unity of vision of who we are and where we're going. There is a unity of family. There is a unity of humility and selflessness, and everyone's looking out for everybody else. That is the harmony in the unity that Paul is talking about. And then he says, "Do not be proud, but will it but be willing to associate with people of low position?" You know, in a in a in that time in the Greco-Roman times, in a, in a world that's so concerned about status, Paul had to remind them, "Don't let that." Uh, influence who you associate, associate with in the church. We're going to be united and associate and love everybody equally. And not only that, but this phrase can also be translated, be willing to accept humble duties. Be willing to accept the lowest duties in the community. And I like one biblical scholar, William Mounts, He's he's. I love the frankness with which he talks about this passage. He says, the admonition is to get off one's high horse and to come to grips with reality. There are both humble tasks and ordinary people who need our attention. To withdraw from either one is to allow pride to control our lives. So we are not to withdraw or remove ourselves from the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, those with a different income bracket than us. And we can often fall into Satan's temptation to consider ourselves better than others or perhaps at least entitled to better treatment or entitled to withdraw from certain people or places or positions or maybe think that we are above certain duties and tasks. So that's why Paul says, do not be conceited or literally do not be wise in your own eyes. See this pride, arrogance and conceit, they don't lead to peace They lead to division, disunity, and disruption. Pride makes enemies. It fuels the enemy-making machine. But again, our model is Jesus. Our model is Jesus. How good is Jesus? Though he is God in the flesh, though he is the king of kings, the most powerful being in the universe, he came down and became a servant. He ministered to the poor. He became homeless. He was a friend of, of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And he washed his disciples' feet. He was a humble agent of peace. So in a world that, make, that makes enemies, we pursue peace. In a world that does evil, we do good. And Paul continues this thought <clears throat> in Romans 12, 17. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, of everyone. Now, I want to come back to the repay evil for evil part. We're going to talk about that at the end. Uh, But I want to touch on the idea of being careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. You see, in order to create peace and live at peace in the world, Christians need to give consideration to what is commonly considered right in the eyes of the world. Now this can be a little dangerous because the world does not determine for really anybody or especially for the church what is right and wrong. God determines what is right and wrong. We look to the word of God to determine right or wrong. Nevertheless, in order to live at peace in the world, it is important for Christians to take into consideration the general views of the culture that they find themselves in. What does the world think about these things? And Paul did this, when when the Apostle Paul, when he was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem, he was collecting money from all the Gentile churches, and he was making sure that he had all kinds of people with him to take this collection to Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure he had all kinds of checks and balances, even though the church probably trusted the Apostle Paul. But look what he says in 2 Corinthians 8.21. He says, "...indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right." Not only before the Lord, but also before people. And that's an important order. The Lord first, people second, but the, viewpoint, the viewpoints of people also matter. <clears throat> and interestingly, one of the qualifications for a pastor, for an elder in the Bible, in 1 Timothy 3, it says he must have a good reputation among outsiders. There was a consideration to how people in the world viewed this person. And so, Christians, we are to give an ample consideration to doing what is right in the eyes of the world. Of course, we we want to never contradict the Word of God, but we are to be winsome and respectable to the people around us. Friends, the gospel, it's already offensive enough. We don't need to give people any other reason to be offended at us. The gospel will will do that enough. So we need to pause and think about our actions and what we do so that we can can refrain from needlessly offending others and creating division. And Paul takes this further, even in the next verse. Excuse me a moment while I get a drink. Paul continues this thought in verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, this whole section has been filled with these, like, one-sentence commands. You know, and don't you think it would have been smoother and nicer if Paul had just said, live at peace with everyone? Oh, that's so nice. That's something you could put on Instagram. That's something you could put on a nice, you know, wall decor, decoration. Uh, That would be a great thing to see on Pinterest. Live at peace with everyone. But, The Bible is always practical and is applicable to the real world. So Paul gives two caveats here. If it's possible and as far as it depends on you. You see, sometimes the peace that we long for on this side of eternity is not possible. Even spreading the good news of Jesus Christ in many contexts in the world causes division. It causes persecution and conflict to arise. It reveals a division. And that's what happens when we hate what is evil, when we cling to what is good. There is often a contradiction with the church and the world. And so we should not turn, just simply turn a blind eye to evil or to sin or to injustice because it's not possible to always be at peace with everyone everywhere. But that does not mean that we simply give up because Paul says, as far as it depends on you, Okay, yeah, there will be people who will reject you, who they will not repent, they will not apologize, they will will not reconcile with you. Okay, there's nothing we can do. But Paul says, make sure it's as far as it depends on you. That is a high call. We are called to do everything that we can, everything within our power to not give up on people, to not give up on peace. Even when it's so difficult, even when it makes you want to pull your hair out at what people have done, we pursue peace. I mean, Jesus said it himself in Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. We are like God when we pursue peace because God pursued peace with us. So we are to refrain from all revenge. In a world that makes enemies, we make peace. In a world that does evil, we do good. And Paul continues this further, Romans 12, 19. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So, many of you know that when Jesus was asked about what are the greatest commandments, what are the most important commandments in the Bible, Jesus actually ties two verses from the Old Testament together. The first comes from Deuteronomy, where we get the love the Lord your God. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then Jesus says the second is like it. And he takes a passage from Leviticus that includes, Love your neighbor as yourself. But actually, that's only a small portion of that text. And if you look at the first part of it, it's really interesting. It says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice that. We love our neighbors. In many ways, but especially by not taking revenge or bearing grudges. We forgive. We let it go. We pursue peace. But the reality is, and I've experienced this, I'm sure you've experienced this too, when something wrong happens to us, when something evil or unjust or someone is just plain mean, it can be so hard to let that go. It can be so hard to let that go. And I'm reminded, I remind myself that that is a sign that yes, there is right and wrong in this world. There is justice and injustice. But God says, don't take revenge. Don't take revenge. Because God is the one who will repay people for their sins. God will make sure that everything is fair and just in the end. Now, that doesn't mean that we we just do nothing about evil and injustice in the world. That's not true. But when we know that God's going to take care of it, that gives us the strength. let it go. It's not our job to take revenge. It's not our job to do that. God's going to take care of it. And that gives us the strength to do what Jesus calls us to do and the Bible calls us to do in the next verse. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, in other words, do good for your enemy. Be kind. Do good deeds. And when you do that, Paul says, you will. well, he's quoting from Proverbs here, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this is kind of a funny phrase, but it simply means that when you are kind and do good deeds to your enemy, to the person on the other side, to the person who has wronged you, that good deed is going to fill them with a burning sense of shame that what they have done is wrong that they should not have acted that way. And we hope and we pray that God's favor would be upon them and by doing these acts of good deeds, they might feel a sense of good shame that brings them to repentance and brings forgiveness and reconciliation in the world and in the relationship. And in other words, what F.F. Bruce says, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. So that's what we're going for in a world that makes enemies we make peace in a world that does evil we do good so finally paul concludes in verse 21 which i don't have on the screen but it says do not be over do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good now this part of do not become do not be overcome by evil this is in the present tense in the greek so this means this is something that's ongoing we are to work Constantly at overcoming all of the evil that comes our way, we are to overcome it with good. We are to turn evil against itself and unwind the antagonisms and unwind the polarization that keeps happening in the world. And I like to think of this like judo. Now, if you don't know anything about judo, it's it's a form of martial arts, and in it there is no punching, there is no kicking, there is no striking of your opponent. Of any kind (laughs) how are you gonna how are you gonna fight somebody if you can't if you can't strike them well what what they do is they use the the movement and the force of your opponent as someone's coming at you you use that momentum to throw your opponent maybe behind you or to the side so that you can disarm them and use their force against themselves and judo it literally comes from japanese words that mean the way of gentleness a, a form of martial arts called the way of gentleness. And so that's a picture of what we are to do with evil. When evil comes our way, when someone wrongs us, when there's an, there's an enemy making going on, we want to, to somehow take that evil and use it against itself and overcome it with good. We do a, we do a good deed instead. Instead of taking revenge, we do something nice. Instead of taking revenge, we give food, we give a cup of cold water, we do a good deed, we write a note, we make a phone call. And that's how we overcome evil with good. And I like what Martin Luther King Jr. said about this. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. That's what we're going for. And friends, this is what Jesus did for each one of us. Even though we were God's enemies, even though we rebelled against our Creator, we chose sin and disobedience, Jesus came down. And He let the most evil thing, the most unjust thing in, the history, in human history, God, the most innocent person, human ever, was crucified on the cross for no reason. And He let that happen to Him in order that your sin might be forgiven, your sin might be paid for, and that you would be reconciled to God in perfect peace and love forever and ever. It's an indescribable gift. And Jesus is our ultimate example of someone who came to an enemy-making world and he made peace. He came to a world that does so much evil and he overcame it to to do the most ultimate good that he could do. And now, friends, Jesus' spirit is in us. And he sends us out to be his light, his love, his peace, his agents of healing and reconciliation. In this polarized world, we are his ministers of reconciliation, bringing peace and love to the world. So in a world that makes enemies, we make peace. In a world that does evil, we do good because that's what Jesus did on our behalf and for the whole world. You know, I love the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi and I think it captures this mission so well. And brothers and sisters, I know that this, this week and the coming weeks are going to be exceedingly difficult in this election season. And as your pastor, I want to form you and I want to shape you and to be ready For this enemy making machine, I want you to discern it because you're going to see the polarization happen. You're going to see the enemy making machine happen. And I want us to resist it. And I want us instead to be light, to be the light. And so I'm going to commend us this prayer of St. Francis. And as you're watching online, you can see it in our links. You can download this prayer, print it off. Put this somewhere in your, in your home, uh, on your fridge, by your mirror, somewhere you can see this. Let's pray this every day, once a day, for the next week as a church. What if we could do that? I think that would root us and center us as we go through this next week. So we're going to close with that prayer this morning. Let's make this our prayer as we enter into this polarizing time. So would you join me and at home as you're praying uh, say this out loud with me, and then we'll go into our time of prayer together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, and it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life.